Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. How do we talk about contemporary worship in a way that describes what is actually going on in the church today? How do we keep our worship faithful to our beliefs? How do we ensure worship includes both intimacy and awe? And why is worship about God coming to us rather than us working towards God? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Professor Maggie Dawn, Professor in the Department of Theology and Religion here in Durham. Maggie is a theologian, author, musician and priest, and has written extensively on liturgy, art and culture. And our title today is, If the Whole Earth is the Lord's, How Should We Worship? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Maggie Dawn, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show today. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your role as being a professor in the Department of Theology and Religion here at Durham University. And and in particular, what are the the different places you found yourself serving on the way to this particular role? Well, I didn't really start life as an academic at all. I started out in the music business as a songwriter and musician. And um, it was partly to do with that that uh, that I ended up sort of gradually going to where I am now. I did have an abiding interest in theology, and my vicar at the time, who was subsequently Archbishop of York, that's Dr. Sentamu, who I know Cranmer is very fond of, he encouraged me as his parishioner to learn Greek and to read some serious theology, but also he kept badgering me in my spare time to write some hymns for his church um, because he really liked contemporary styles of music but he wanted to see songs that made good theological sense. And so if I was going to write him good theological songs, he needed me to read some theology. So he kept lending me Bart and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Nice light reading. (laughs) So anyway, um, along the way, I sort of found myself being asked by all sorts of people whether I'd considered being ordained, which was odd because at the time women couldn't be ordained. So, you know, it was like, "Mm, what's going on there? Anyway, long story short, eventually I found myself in Cambridge um, studying for a degree and then another degree and at the same time doing ordination training. And eventually in my PhD studies, I found those two worlds came together and everything I learned and understood, or partly understood instinctively really as a songwriter, made me ask particular questions about theology. You know, why do we do theology like this and not do it like that? And why is it we don't take enough notice of language and sound and how it feels in your mouth and how it sounds in your ears and that kind of thing? Um, And so that ended up being the motivation for my PhD studies. And so then I went to Yale for 10 years, well, eight years in the States, had a wonderful time there and was responsible for one of the chapels at Yale um, and this program of worship and the arts that was absolutely fantastic, had so much fun. And then three years ago, came to Durham to teach here. And I spend a lot of my time teaching on language and the significance of language and meaning 
for theology. And occasionally I get to dabble a bit in music and worship and that kind of stuff as well. And Maggie, you, you, you've written on a whole range of themes as a theologian. Um, I know from pilgrimage to liturgy to the consecration of women as bishops in the Church of England. Today, we're talking specifically about worship and in particular, contemporary worship. Can you help us, first of all, by giving us a definition of contemporary worship and perhaps giving us a little bit of sense of the backstory, how we've got to where we are and thinking about it? Yeah, I really like that question, Philip, because I think it's a kind of tricky question. It seems to me that most of the time in church circles, when people say contemporary worship, it summons up an image of something that's slightly informal. It looks a little bit like a, a, a small gig. Um, it has guitars. It's very music focused. And it tends towards a kind of West Coast soft rock musical style. And, you know, there's a certain amount of informality between the person on the stage and the person in the pew, as it were. Um, so is that what contemporary worship is? On the other hand, contemporary just means whatever's going on right now. And so if I ask myself, what is contemporary about worship? And then I go across the green from where I'm sitting now to Durham Cathedral. Well, you know, they do choral evensong in there, but they're doing it today. So that is contemporary. And, and they're not doing it like they did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. You know, it's not quite as old as it looks. Um, so that's contemporary too. And I think if we isolate it to just one particular sort of guitar band music, then we're missing eons of other forms of music that we don't take much account of. You know, what about jazz? What about blues? What about gospel? So I understand what people mean when they say contemporary worship, and they mean that sort of vineyard soft drop thing. But contemporary ought to mean an awful lot more. Therefore, what is the relationship between what we often describe as contemporary worship and worship of the past? Is what's often thought about in contemporary worship in terms of what you describe in terms of West Coast soft rock? Is that something really new or is it a continuation of previous trends in the evolution of worship over the years? Um, I think it's kind of both at the same time in a way. And I, I think... <laughs> Perhaps we have this tendency in church circles to kind of divide things into two all the time. You know, there's old and there's new, or there's traditional and there's contemporary. And actually, there, there is no two. <laughs> there's no neat division. There's a whole lot of things, and the lines are very blurred between. Um, and like I said, traditional worship, what we think of as tradition, you imagine that choral evensong is something that people have been doing since 1500 and something, or... 1200 and something. Well, it's actually, that's not true. The choral even song you see now is relatively modern. And the contemporary wish, I mean, some of the stuff we play that passes for contemporary is, well, gosh, we were doing that when I was a teenager, you know, so it's not that contemporary, really. <laughs> I think what does matter, though, is not, is it old? Is it new? Is it traditional? Is it informal? Is it formal? I don't think that matters so much. I think what does matter is whether we see some theological continuity within our traditions. And we can do a lot of different styles, a lot of different forms, and we can do them, uh, you know, you can have several different ones going on in one church at different moments in the day. You can even, although it's not an easy thing to do, you can even bring some of those together a little bit. 
and and mix up some of the styles, although perhaps we talk about that a bit later. But but I think it does matter that we trace our theological continuity from one century and decade to the next. Because otherwise, if we just say, oh, this style of music is so gorgeous, let's sing some of that at church, and we don't attend to what the messages are within those songs that are being put across, then we are not being faithful to our own beliefs, I think. I think we should keep going back and saying, what are we saying here? What what are we saying to ourselves about what we believe in, who we believe in? And is that really what we think? And is it congruent with, you know, all of the great saints that we've followed on from for centuries? And I think that's really valuable work. You make the case for theological continuity being more important than a particular style. And I certainly my experience, Maggie, is here at St. John's College in Grammar Hall, we might have different styles than any given Tuesday evening college communion, which is our main act of worship in the week. But there is a kind of theological coherence that brings those different styles together. So pushing on that theological point, Maggie, are there theological trends within some aspects of contemporary worship that you think are perhaps short on continuity and strong on innovation in a way that's perhaps not entirely helpful? I think maybe there are, but I don't think it's just about the music or the culture of worship. I think it's also to do with the whole culture that we live in. And one of the trends I see is that there is quite a leaning towards leaving out the names of God. So you sing to God very predominantly in the second person. You this, you that, you know, you don't say Christ or God or Father, Jesus, whatever it is you want to call God. But you, you this, you that. And there's an indication there of the preference for personal intimacy with God. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you leave out the transcendence, which is the other part of it, you can end up saying, you know, Jesus is my best mate, but I'm never going to be impressed if God walks in the door. Now, if you read the scriptures, every single person who ever came face to face with any kind of physical or or semi-physical rendition of the presence of God, you know, think about Moses in the cleft of the rock, or um, you know John on the island of Patmos, they catch even a glimpse of the presence of God, and they hit the deck, you know, every single time. So I think we need to be careful that we allow ourselves to appreciate transcendence and the awe-inspiring majesty of God, as well as that deep and um, you know, heart-touching intimacy. And there's nothing, you know, it's not like one's right and one's wrong. They're all right. And if you trace your way back through St. Augustine or the Book of Psalms, they're all there too. You know, I, I rather reject the idea that contemporary music is wrong because it's all about me. Well, I mean, you go and read the Book of Psalms. That's all about me in a big way. Um, but it, it's about a whole lot of other things too. And so I, I think... When I'm looking for, you know, are we falling too much into one thing or another? It's not really one thing's right and the other's wrong. It's just, have we got overbalanced onto one thing and are we losing something um, as a result? 
So I, I would go for a bit more awe and transcendence. You've named, I think, one of the risks that we might be need to be aware of in our experience of contemporary worship. I know you've written about how biblical language and imagery find echoes in art, music and literature wherever we look. And therefore you kind of very helpfully, it seems to me, question what is sometimes seen as a neat divide between sacred art and culture on the one hand and secular art and culture on the other. I wonder, how do you see the relationship between contemporary worship in its diversity and other forms of musical expression? Yeah, that's a great question, Philip. It's something I think about quite a lot, really. I don't think there is a neat divide between them. I think it's quite legitimate to to recognise that some things deliberately are aimed at a sacred purpose. And to, to deny that would just be silly, really. But I also think that if you are in a faith system, such as the Christian faith, then absolutely everything you see, encounter or look at, unless it is quite deliberately and dangerously against that faith, everything in the world is then seen through that lens. You know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Well, okay, that means every piece of music I listen to, every piece of art I see, it's not necessarily that the artist intended it to be sacred, but I can't help but see the echoes of God wherever I look. And so I think that leaves a little bit of flexibility in what we can and can't draw into worship. And if something speaks in a particular way in the context of worship, I don't think there's any harm in in drawing stuff in that wasn't deliberately meant to be for the purpose of worship. I do think it needs framing, not explaining necessarily, but framing. I used to work with my students at Yale on this and say, you know, if you if you bring a piece of art or music or dance or something into worship and you explain it before it happens, you know, we're going to see a dance. And the reason we're having this dance is and then you explain what it means, then you've completely taken the gas out of the balloon. You need to allow the piece of art or music or whatever to speak for itself because it will speak in its own voice. But you do, I think, need to frame something in the context of worship so that you just sort of open the door on it for people a little bit. I can give you an example, if you like. I had, I have a friendship with a marvellous tap dancer who is now in Vancouver, but at the time was in New York, Andrew Nimmer, absolutely stunning dancer. And one time I said to him, look, if I invited you to come up and spend the day at Yale, do you think you could preach by dancing? And I was just kind of talking like, you know, sort of thing you say over a cup of coffee. Could, could that happen? Really? And he said immediately, yes, it could. I said, wow. I mean, what would that look like? How would we do that? And he said, I don't know. I just know that it must be possible. I'll call you tomorrow. So he went back off to New York and uh, the next day we spoke again and he said, right, he said, I think I've figured it out. He said, what we'll do is whatever story it is that we're reading from the Bible, I will dance something that is in response to that. So we got to towards the moment when he was going to do this. And I thought, well, you know, it might work, it might not, but it's certainly worth giving it a, a chance. And at the very least, we'll see a brilliant dancer. So nothing too much wrong with that. So anyway, I was making up this service sheet to, to give to the congregation and I wrote in it, sermon, 
Andrew Nimmer. And just before it, it was reading. And then I looked at this order of service and I thought, okay, so everybody in the congregation looks at the order of service, sees sermon coming up and will be waiting for somebody to stand up and, and talk. And instead, somebody will get up and dance. Now, what might happen is that they will sit there, watch him dance and not really get it because they're waiting for whoever's going to get up and talk. And then it'll be over and they'll go, they'll have missed it. So how do I do that? But how do I do it without explaining it? So in the end, I did the reading or somebody else did the reading. And then I stood up and said, it's a real pleasure to welcome our, you know, the person who's giving us our sermon today. And the reading had been from Elijah, you know, the thing about Elijah with the earthquake and the wind and the fire. So I said, here's Elijah's situation that he was expecting to hear the voice of God. And he knew what the voice of God was likely to sound like, you know, something dramatic, something that blows you away, something that lights up the world, you know, but he was going to hear or see something amazing. And then all of that went away. And what he actually heard was practically nothing at all but it absolutely was not what he expected to hear. So I said, what would it be like if we were today to anticipate a sermon, but nothing like we expected to hear? And then I sat down. So it didn't explain what was going to happen. I didn't explain what he was going to do. I didn't tell him what it meant. I just gave him a frame to say, the sermon might not be what you're expecting. That's all. And then he danced. And this was amazing. I sat there. Of course, I thought I was getting very over-emotional because it was so marvellous. But as he danced, it just felt to me like the room got bigger, like a almost TARDIS-like, you know, just sort of felt something was expanding in the room. And afterwards, I thought, oh, well, you know, calm down, Dawn, you're getting overexcited here. So I went to the door to greet people as they left, which is what I always did. And as people came out, one, you know, they said, oh, it's amazing. I was just not expected. It was really fantastic. And then this one person stopped me and said, I hope this doesn't sound really peculiar and really weird, but I got this extraordinary sense while he was dancing that the room was getting bigger. <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> goosebumps. So something quite dramatic happened to people's perception of something extraordinary in the room. We talked about it for weeks and what it meant. I mean, what does it mean when you dance? That's a conversation as long as a piece of string, as with music. But um, something good happened and something good continued to come out of it for weeks afterwards. But I, it, the point being that you can frame it without explaining it. And it required an openness to experience God in the earth and all that is in it. In other words, it required an openness to say this may not be explicit, but we're not really terribly concerned. We just want to be open to how God might want to speak in all that God has made and all that is part of God's creative process of which human beings are a part, isn't it, really? I wonder if we can come back to that point, therefore, and perhaps connect the two things you've just spoken about. You spoke earlier about the need to or the value of seeing increasing awareness of God's transcendence, the sort of the God who calls us to awe, who inspires in us awe and worship. And then you've kind of invited us to see worship in a broader sense and that lots of senses and lots of parts of God's created order might contribute to, to our own experience of worship. 
are there things in that last sort of section that help us or have helped you in the past develop that sense of uh, the transcendent God? Are there things that you've pointed to that help correct or help balance a more sort of God's very intimate, God's very close to us? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's lots of things that I could say about, you know, from a conceptual point of view, in terms of propositional arguments, how would we do this? But in terms of actually doing it in the room, I I did a lot of work, especially at Yale, on the whole context of worship, by which I mean the worship is not the plan that we've written down and the words that we're anticipating and the songs that we've planned, but it's the other stuff within within which that takes place. The example I would give is, supposing we were going to talk about a play. I'm going to see a play in a couple of nights' time. Well, if I get the script of the play and read the script, and then I lift up the book and show it to you and say, that's a play, is that a play? Well, kind of yes and kind of no. It's the script of a play, but it's not the play until it's actually on the stage taking place. And for that to happen, it has to take place in space and time, not just to be a, a thing you can stick on the bookshelf and say, I've got a play on my shelf. You have a play in a theatre and it takes time for it to happen. And that's most obviously the case with music. You can't play a piece of music all in 10 seconds if it's supposed to take 10 minutes. It just demands time and space. So anyway... In the, in the course that I taught on worship at Yale, we never got round to the words, the songs and the script until about a third of the way through the course. What we did first was look at the building. What did the building sound like, feel like, look like, smell like? How did we arrange the building? What did we do with all the, you know, what, what could we not do anything with? What was already there that, you know, hundreds of years of incense baked into the walls or, you know, the particular windows, whether they're stained glass or clear glass, and so the light is different. There's just certain things you can only accept and work with. And then there's other things you can do with a building. You can soften acoustics. You can make sure that you don't leave the clutter in the doorway so it looks like a furniture warehouse instead of a you know, a place where the transcendent God is about to <laughs> drop down from heaven. So the space, what does it sound like? If you raise your voice in a church, it sounds dramatically different in the chapel at Cranmer than it does in Durham Cathedral or in St. Paul's or Westminster Abbey or or wherever you care to choose. The, The acoustic, the echo, all of that makes a difference. I mean, worship in the end, as Augustine so beautifully puts it, it's you only end up worshiping God Finally, when you stop trying to move towards God and you just sit down and let God move towards you or recognize that God's there all the time anyway. It's not like we're trying to create worship for God as if God was our audience. What we're trying to do is put ourselves in a place where we just go, I'm here, I'm paying attention, and I'm able to perceive. You know, just sort of quiet all the stuff and allow God to be fully present. But I think if we are creating worship spaces, that's what we're trying to do for a body of people to say, how can we manage this space and create the the right combination of words and sounds and smells and so on in order that people are most likely to be able 
to sit down, pay attention and just allow God to be present, whether in a massive transcendent way or in a perfectly intimate, close way. That's really not my business. That's up to God. <laughs> and, you know, you possibly could even have both things going on at the same time, really, in the in one group of people. But, yeah, I think it's really attending to all that stuff that goes way beyond what words are we going to say. You've described a process whereby worship is, is, is an experience which is so much bigger than words and music, but it is about framing an encounter. And what I found really interesting was when you said actually worship is, is about us being attentive rather than about us, us working towards God, but us being attentive to the God who comes towards us. I wonder, is that something which you think is a message the church needs to hear? In other words, that we can both underthink worship and overthink it at the same time, underthink it in terms of underthinking the framing that needs to be there, but overthinking it in terms of making it so much work that we have to generate an encounter for ourselves as opposed to letting God encounter us. Oh, I do think that's, yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult to make sure that you, that you don't make it too much work. If it is work, it should be joyful, creative work. And the only reason I do this kind of mad creative stuff is because I love it and it brings me to life. But there are other people for whom that would just be just like, oh, let's just go do Evensong, for goodness sake. And that's okay. You know, if you're an Evensong person, go do Evensong. And if you're a person like me and you want to do mad creative stuff, then it's, it's whatever brings you to life, as Ignatius would, would endorse. You know, it's uh, not everybody's the same, but we need to find our consolations. But yes, we, it was, it was James Torrance, wasn't it, who wrote that book on worship and the triune God of grace. And that first, first or second chapter, he makes that point that if we spend all our work and effort trying to come to God with a thing that will make worship happen and please God, he said it's really failing to understand that God in triune relationship, the party's already started. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Creator, the Redeemer, Sustainer, whatever you want to call them. But um, I tend to go for Father, Son, Spirit because I like to name God, not describe God in job descriptions. But I, I understand the whole gender thing. That's a that's a tricky thing to to name God uh, well and completely. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there in mutual, eternal adoration. The party's already started. All we need to do is show up and join in. And that just takes the pressure right off. And I think even if you are the person who's responsible for hosting, planning, leading, whatever you want to call it, you need to let yourself off the hook too. Just say, right, well, I'm going to be the person who opens the door for everybody. But it's still not my party. This is... This is God's party and we're just coming to join in. You described your own areas of delight and joy and creativity, Maggie, in terms of you just love kind of exploring the creative side that God's gifted with you with. I know, Maggie. How has this journey impacted your own experience of God in the diverse ways in which you've nurtured worship, opened the door for God to use your language? Can I ask how that's impacted other aspects of your faith and encounter with God over the years? I find that the most difficult question of all, actually, Philip, because I kind of don't know. On the one hand, 
one of the books I wrote was called The Accidental Pilgrim. And uh, I fell upon the title after a while. And because as I was writing, I began to realize that if you describe your journey of faith, you have to admit that you've no idea what you're doing. And the best plan you had for it in the first place, your own plans never work out anyway. And you may end up in a good, in a good place, but it's probably not by the route you imagined. Or if it's by the route you imagined, you don't end up where you thought you were going. So I think, you know, the idea that, that somehow all of this has had a nice, neat impact on my journey of faith, it doesn't work that way. A lot of it, in my own experience, is that it's enabled me to do something that I hope is moderately useful, despite everything, despite the fact that for the first half of my life, women couldn't be ordained and we weren't allowed to join in. But I could play music and I could do some other stuff. So, yeah, there was that. And then, you know, I found myself in, even after I'd been ordained, it still wasn't actually a very open situation for women. And I've, oddly, I've only ever worked for two years for the Church of England, not for lack of trying. I applied for load of, loads of jobs and never got them. But the academic world liked me. And so I have, despite everything, found that doing something that I could do, despite the fact that the other thing didn't happen, all of a sudden the world opens up in unexpected ways. And I think for me, that's a bit of the transcendent moment that you think, oh, oh, you know, I'm so disappointed that that didn't happen. Oh, well, I'll try this. And then suddenly, woo, something extraordinary does happen. And that, for me, makes me think, you know, God laughs up his sleeve at us when we have all these rules and expectations and plans and, you know, my plans for my life and my church saying I can't do that and all the rest of it. God's just laughing and saying, oh, come on. Let's do this instead. And God is always bigger and never without hope. Well, Maggie, you certainly helped us see a bigger view of the God we're invited to worship with our lips and with our lives. Maggie Dawn, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.